All right, so this message this morning is Come Together. How many of you started humming the Beatles song as soon as you saw the title? Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. It's not about the Beatles song. Um, <laughs> it's about God's Word. And God's Word says, come together. We're going to be talking about Jesus' command for a time for the church to come together and celebrate the gospel. The good news that God loved his creation so much that he would send his own son to earth as a perfect image bearer, showing us just what God is like. Jesus lived a perfect life. Even though he was tempted and tested just as we are, he never once gave in to sin. And that made him the perfect sinless sacrifice. He was nailed to a cross where he bled and died, paying God's ultimate price for the cost of our sins. And then after being buried... He came back to life three days later, and he offers forgiveness. He offers peace with God. He offers salvation and eternal life to anyone who trusts in him alone. This morning, we've demonstrated this beautiful story, the gospel story, through the elements, the bread and the cup of communion. The Apostle Paul wanted to make sure that the church was doing this right. So how do we celebrate the gospel at church? Kids, how do we celebrate that when we come together? It's something we did this morning. It starts with a C. Communion. Good job, Arrow. In the city of Corinth, inviting people together for a meal was a way of showing off your social status, how important you were, how much money you had. And people often wanted to show off to others that, hey, I'm kind of a big deal, in case you didn't know it. So they had a lavish spread of food. They had servants taking care of them. And if you think about Middle Eastern um, architecture, you're going to picture maybe stone or clay houses with big open windows. So even people walking by are going to see just who you're having for dinner and say, oh, look, they're having the mayor. They're having a council person. They're having someone from the church. So they're paying attention to who's there, and they're wanting everybody to know that. When Jesus told his followers to come together for communion, he wanted them to see his sacrifice. He wanted them to be focused on his love. It was all about God's grace, the undeserved love, not about how important people were. It was a reminder that when the members of the church came together, there was one thing that they all had in common, and that was Jesus' love, his sacrifice, his forgiveness. It had nothing to do with status or making yourself look good. So our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 17 to 34, we're finishing up the chapter that we started last week. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. We're going to hear Paul's response to some of the problems in the Corinthian church. And they had some problems with communion. It seems so simple to us today because we've been following the example set for us by the church who's been, we think, doing it right for the last 2,000 years. But the Corinthians were trying to figure things out. They were the first century church. 
So they heard directly from Paul, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have communion, have bread, have a cup. But then they messed things up. And Paul hears about it, whether it's someone writing a letter to him or someone bringing a message, and Paul is addressing yet another problem in the Corinthian church. So our series this morning, if you're new with us, is called Living in Light of Eternity. We're in Paul's epistle or letter to the church of Corinth, and it has a number one in front of it, meaning it's his first letter to them. Following it is the second letter. The Apostle Paul wrote about some very specific problems they were dealing with, things like sexual morality, issues like marriage and singleness, things like using your spiritual gifts, and finally, a need for everything to be done in love. And then at the end of the book, and we'll get there in a few chapters, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how believers who have the gift of eternal life will also be resurrected. We have a home waiting for us in heaven. And Paul's very practical instructions to him is, to them is, how should we live in light of eternity? How should you live in knowing the fact that your soul is eternal? Life is not whatever's going on today and I don't have to worry about tomorrow. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not our philosophy as a believer's. We know that we have an eternal soul. We know we have a home waiting for us in heaven. So what are we doing today that's going to impact eternity? Not only for ourselves, but the people around us. Corinth was a seaport city, part of the Roman Empire's trade route. And like other wealthy crossroads cities, it had a reputation for immorality, for religious diversity, people from all different cultures coming together, and also political corruption. Kind of like our culture today, isn't it? So when we think about this letter to a group of people 2,000 years ago, we can still find principles that apply to us today. We can still find things that we're struggling with in the church today. Things that we're struggling with as we deal with our society. So we're going to dig in and look for things that God can encourage us with. Before we read this passage, would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you that we could come together to celebrate communion this morning, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, to remember his sacrifice, his blood poured out for us in song. And Lord, as we go into your word this morning, I pray that each one of us would have ears that are willing to hear, that we would have hearts that are soft and tender, willing to listen to your word and see the things that we need to do to change in our thinking, in our words, in our actions. Help us, Lord, to not be hearers only, but to be doers. And as we walk out of church today, that we would go into the world reminded of the way you want us to live, that in all things we would bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ, that we would honor him. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I read this passage... Kids, you can count how many come-togethers there are. Adults, you can do it too. But keep a little list. If you haven't learned how to make check marks, that's a good way to do it. Every time you hear come together, make a little check mark, and then at the end, we're going to count up and see how many check marks we have of the phrase come together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. 
Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe that in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat... Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but the other things I will give directions when I come. Amen. How many come-togethers did you count? How many got five? How many got seven? Good. I only got five. But there were five come-togethers, and that's why I titled the message this. As I read this chapter, I was like, what's standing out here? What is being repeated? And that's one of the things God gives us to help us recognize the importance of a passage. When something is repeated, like when Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, listen to this. This is true, listen. He said, come together five times. That's the whole point of communion. It's coming together. In last week's passage, all the way back in verse 2 of chapter 11, the Apostle Paul said, Now I commend you because you remembered me in everything, and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And here in verse 17, it's the complete opposite. Paul says, In these following instructions, I do not commend you. If Paul had an underline, the word not would be underlined there. I don't commend you. You are, you are not celebrating the communion the way I taught you. When you come together, you're just making things worse. There are divisions. I'm hearing that when you come together, instead of unity and a focus on Jesus Christ, there are divisions and there are factions that are separating people. There are some people who are trying to keep that spiritual focus in communion, and those are people 
who are genuine. They're recognized as, yes, these people are doing communion right. But then there's other groups that are doing it wrong. Their motives are not pure. We saw in the first four chapters that the Corinthian church was not united in Christ. Paul talked to them about people following different leaders. We like Apollos. We like Paul. We like Peter. They were chasing after different leaders or preachers in the church. There were groups who were boasting about who baptized them. Oh, I was baptized by the pastor that was here forever. Or I was baptized by this pastor or that pastor. And that makes my salvation, it makes my status a little bit better. I've been here longer than you. Who do you think you are? Some were acting arrogantly because they thought they knew more than others. And now Paul is addressing people who are mistreating communion. It's another issue of unity. It's supposed to be about what? What's our repeated phrase? Coming together. As a church, many different people with one thing in common. One thing uniting them. And what is that? Jesus Christ. The reason we're all here today is not because it's a warm place to sit on a Sunday morning. It's because Jesus Christ, we've recognized him as our Savior. We've recognized him as the source of peace, the source of life, the source of truth. And we want to be together with other people who want to worship him, who want to celebrate him. Jesus Christ is the reason we're here. So what are they doing? They're eating and drinking an entire meal. And this sounds weird to us, but they're coming together and in front of everybody else, it's like they're bringing in this big picnic basket to show off their status. Look at all of the things that we have for our meal. We have hors d'oeuvres. We have a charcuterie, if they had that in Greece. We have this course and that course. We've got a fish course. We've got this course and while they're overeating and stuffing their faces, it says some of them are even getting drunk while other people are sitting there with nothing at all. They didn't even bother to notice the people around them who had less, and they didn't even think to share. Paul says, you could eat at home. You have a home for that. That's what you should be doing at home. Why are you showing off here at church? Not that you should show off at home either, But this is not the point of why we've gathered together. It's not a chance for you to show your wealth, to show your prosperity. Instead, you're humiliating the people with no food. And you're despising the body of Christ. You're looking down on others and saying, look what I have, you have nothing, I'm better than you. Our example for communion is just the two parts of the meal that Jesus talked about, the bread and the cup. They're symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It wasn't supposed to be a full meal where the focus would get lost with so much food. They were missing the whole point of communion. It's all about Jesus' sacrifice for us. It's not about feeding yourself. It's about coming together. And then Paul says, what do you expect me to say? This is the New Jersey version. Should I say good job to you? Should I commend you for this? No, I will not. Paul's getting a little salty here. There's no way that I'm going to say you're doing this right. 
you are blowing this up. You're doing it totally wrong. And I told you how to do this. You can't fix everything with duct tape. So that's, that's the back slide. Just one second, Donna. How many of you have a dad, kids, who fix everything with duct tape? Or maybe your mom's the duct tape queen. That's okay, too. When uh, my daughter was younger, duct tape was all the rage, and she had the designer duct tape. She had the zebra pattern duct tape and the flamingo duct tape and all kinds of duct tape. But you can't fix this problem with duct tape. How are we going to solve this issue in the church? How are we going to stop these divisions? How are we going to get the focus back on Jesus Christ? What's the right thing to do? In verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, let me tell you again how to do communion. I've already explained it to you, but let me tell you what Jesus told me himself. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Apostle Paul met Jesus. That's why he's the last of the apostles, because on the road to Damascus, he had a bright light shine in his face. It blinded him. And he realized that everything he knew was wrong. What he thought about worshiping God was wrong. What he thought about Christians was wrong. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm the one you've been persecuting. I'm Jesus Christ. Paul met him and instructed him after he regained his sight. So Paul heard from Jesus directly. This is how you're supposed to do communion. These aren't my opinions. These words are exactly what Jesus said. So I'm going to remind you again. On the night when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he told his disciples to gather together and prepare this Passover. And he said, this is going to be the last meal I share with you. It shows up in Matthew chapter 26 in Mark 14, and in Luke 22. Each of those has an account of what we call the Lord's Supper, but it was celebrating the Passover. And there were two parts of the Passover that were especially important, the bread and the cup. Throughout Passover, there are a number of symbols that talk about the Israelites being freed from slavery. God helped them leave Egypt and there are symbols all throughout the Passover meal. But Jesus pointed out two of them in particular and said, these are the things I want you to focus on. Passover, in a sense, has been replaced by the Lord's Supper. How many of you were here when we had a Passover meal together as a church family? We were down in the fellowship hall. Some of you maybe remember that. It was great to see it. And as one of our former missionaries led that, he showed us how Jesus Christ, how the Messiah showed up in all of these different places in the description of the Passover. It was pointing ahead to the coming Messiah. And it was a symbol that the Jews, as they would have heard it and celebrated every year with their family, would say, oh, that's the reason one of the breads was hidden away. That's the reason one of them was broken for us. That's the reason that we found this bread. And he, this is the sweet one. This is the one that gives us life. The cups as well had significance. So first of all, Jesus took unleavened bread. It had no yeast in it. Kids, look up at me for a second. What does yeast do in bread? 
Anybody help bake? Puffs it up. It makes it rise. And does it do it immediately? How many of you have instant yeast and you just open up that little Fleischmann's packet, you pour it in, does it go poof? Kids, does it immediately puff up? Moms and dads, bakers, what do you have to do? What? You have to wait. You have to put it in a kind of warm place and let it rise. If you're really fancy, you have a proofing oven. I love watching the British baking show, and they have all the gadgets. They have all the stuff. They just pop it in their proofer. They pull it out. It's puffed up. It's risen, and it's so yummy that way. But God gave them instructions at the Passover. He said, I want you to be ready to run in a minute's notice. We don't have time to let the bread rise. I'm going to tell you it's time to go, and we're going to run out of Egypt together. So be ready. Don't put yeast in your bread. And God talked about the yeast being a symbol of sin. What happens when there's a little sin in your life? It blows everything up. Just a little sin affects everything. Just like one apple, a bad apple in the barrel does what? It makes the rest of them go bad. We have a little basket on our counter, and if I find an apple that is rotting I get it out quickly before the other ones start rotting with it. Sin, just a little bit of it, affects our whole lives. So God said, I want you to let me search your heart. And that's part of that examination time at communion. Ask God to show us the sin in our lives that we need to confess. Jesus gave thanks to God. A reminder that everything we have is from God and we should always be thankful. And then Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. In Luke 22, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. It's a gift. It's a sacrifice. He's talking about sacrificing his own life for us, just like the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It was a perfect lamb with no spots, no broken bones, nothing weird like half an ear. It had to be the best of their lambs. And that's what was sacrificed. Jesus broke the bread. And his own body was whipped. It was beaten. It was broken for us. But just like the prophecy in Psalms, it says not a single bone was broken. As he broke that bread, they all shared from the one bread. And that's what we have in common. We all share in a salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not because you came from a good family or you came from the right side of town or you have more money than I do. It's not how we get into the family of God. And that's the point of us all being equal before God. We're sharing in the same thing, and that's Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is the way that each one of us is saved. In John 6, Jesus told the people, that God had once before provided bread, the bread of the Passover and the manna in the wilderness. When they were wandering for 40 years and they had nothing to eat, every morning they went out and there was bread, there was grain on the ground that they could grind up and turn into bread. God provided that daily for them. They had nothing to do other than scoop it up. They didn't have to plant it or harvest it. They didn't have to do any work for it. It was just there. It was provided by God's grace. 
He loved them and he provided sustenance for them. In John 6, 33 to 35, Jesus said, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The bread that came from heaven was the Son of God. Just as God provided the manna, and just as he reminded them of that Passover bread, he said, this is me, I'm the bread. As Jesus is standing there with broken bread in his hands and says, this is my body, take and eat of it. Is he saying, eat my arm, eat my leg? What is he doing? It's a symbol. Here's the bread in my hands. So unfortunately, some parts of the church have taught that the bread miraculously becomes the literal body of Jesus Christ. And we know that that's not true because he gave them the bread and said, take and eat this. Share in my life. Share in this life-giving bread. It's a symbol for us. But the bread was not a whole meal. When we break bread at communion, when we share it with others, we're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're not filling ourselves up. So that's why we have this bread that's so small, it can fit in a little cup. It's unleavened bread, and it's a small amount. The only thing that we're not doing is we're not breaking up a big piece to give to each other. That would be awesome if we did that and it fit in there, but we're not doing that. We're reminded that our unity is in Jesus Christ. We're all eating the same bread, right? You're not bringing your own version of this bread from home and say, well, I like it a little saltier, or I want garlic and herb on it, or I want this or that. It's the same thing. We're all sharing in that. And then in verse 25, Jesus took the cup. After the supper, there were four cups in the Passover meal, and this particular cup was the cup of redemption. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and remember me. Again, this is not literally the blood of Jesus Christ. I just have a little bit left. This didn't become Jesus' blood. Just as Jesus was standing there with a cup of wine and said, this is a symbol of my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. And God established that from the beginning. The only way that forgiveness could be achieved is by blood being shed, by someone or something giving up their life. For thousands of years, the Israelites had sacrificed animals, and their blood, God said, would wash away their sins. But only for a little while, only till they sinned again, and then they had a sacrifice again. But when Jesus came, because he was the perfect Lamb of God, because he was sinless, his sacrifice was for all eternity and available to all people. God made a promise, and that was a covenant. That meant it was something from God. It was something that all we had to do was receive, and God would keep his promise. The old promise was, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm sending you a Savior. I sent Moses to get you out of Egypt. He was a savior in a sense. He got you out of Egypt. I sent Joshua, whose name means salvation, to help you get into the land. But I'm going to send an even greater one, a one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ alone could fulfill that description. No human could do that. 
but God coming in human flesh could. Jesus said, I'm replacing this old promise, this idea that you sacrifice an animal and you get forgiveness, it's temporary. I'm going to give you something even greater. You have the real Messiah, capital M. He's here to save you. It's God's son on earth. And God replaced that old promise. The new promise was anyone can be forgiven. Anyone can be saved if they believed in Jesus Christ, that he was the son of God, that he died for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be saved forever, believing that he would come again and bring you eternal life. The blood of Jesus Christ represented by that cup of wine was the perfect sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking about Gentiles, people who are not Jews, who are far away from God's promises. Even though they could go and worship and learn about God, the Jews and the Gentiles had not mixed. They had stayed separate. Paul says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That war between Jews and Gentiles, that war between any two people can be broken down by the peace that Jesus Christ offers. So this cup is not meant to fill you up. It's meant to remind you of the sacrifice that Jesus gave on your behalf on the cross. Verse 26 says, every time we have communion, we share the gospel. We remember Jesus, the Son of God, coming to die on the cross for us. And we remember his promise from John 14 that he would return again. Listen to this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's not only a reminder that we're saved right now from our sins, but it's a promise that we have a home in heaven. When Jesus says, if I go, he does go. He's going to do that later. They, they see it happen. So really, he should be saying, when I go, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and I will come again. In verse 27, Paul warns the Corinthians that they should not take communion if they're not doing it to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a warning to people today too. Do you trust Jesus as your Savior or are you just here for a little cup and a piece of bread? Are you here to make it look good to the people around you, to, for them to think that you're part of the family? Are you doing it in the case of the Corinthians, to show off and say, look at all the food I have. And by the way, the bread and cup of Jesus are just a small part of that. When we do it, it's the whole focus. In verse 28, Paul says, each person, person should examine themselves first before taking part in communion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, back a message from last year, Paul said, the Holy Spirit knows our thoughts. And he knows our hearts even better than we do. So ask God what's wrong in your heart, what's wrong in your mind. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you, and that Spirit can show you, as God reveals to you, the things that you need to confess, the things you need to make right in your life. It's an examination that you do on yourself. Paul didn't make that explicit, but it doesn't mean that you turn to your spouse or your kids or someone around you and say, you need to fix this, and you need to fix that, and you need to take care of that. This is not a time for us to judge each other. It's a time for us to look at our own hearts and say, God, show me what I need to fix. In Psalm 139, David asked God to search his heart, to show him where he was sinning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous or wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me live a life that's in light of eternity. Let me live a life focused on the everlasting life. So we stop each month before we take communion. We have a quiet time where we can pray on our own and talk to God and say, God, show me the things that I need to confess. In case I'm missing them, show me those things. And it's a time for us to ask for God's forgiveness. Not because Jesus' blood on the cross didn't already forgive us, but so that I can go to God with a clean heart and say, today I'm seeking to follow you. I recognize that what I did yesterday was wrong. Forgive me for that. I want to follow you today. And I don't want to just forget about it, sweep it under the rug. I want to clean it up. Verses 33 to 34 tell us to be kind, to think of other people, wait for one another, share with them. Or just eat at home. This way, when you come together for communion, the focus will be on Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives some warnings that there's some consequences if you do this wrong. Verse 29 tells us there's judgment by God. The Bible says that people can only see your outward appearance. They can see your actions. They can hear your words. But God knows what's going on in your heart. Be sure the truth will find you out. God knows your thoughts. And Jesus said, even your thoughts betray you. You may walk a good walk on the outside, but inside your heart, if you're hating and despising people, you're going to be judged for that. I want you pure and holy from the inside out. And that's where God's focus is on our hearts. God sees our hearts. In Romans 2.16, it says, God judges the secrets of a person. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. Even when you do something outwardly that looks good, if you're doing it, hoping that somebody noticed you, then your motives were wrong. And Jesus says, you might as well not even have done it if you were doing it for man's praise. Do everything for the glory of God. God cares about our hearts and motives much more than our outward actions. And that's our CCA verse of the month for February. It says, God cares more about our hearts than sacrifices. He wants us to be following him more than what we give or what we show off. Verses 30 and 31 are pretty scary. Some of you are weak and ill, 
and some have even died. Have there been people that you wonder, why is this person sick all the time? I'm not telling you to judge their hearts, but one of the reasons could be that they are misusing communion, that they're ignoring God's commands. And this says even some people have died because of this. God would rather take a believer home to heaven than have them here living a life that is a bad testimony for him. To to walk around saying, I'm a Christian, and then abusing everyone around you, being hateful and spiteful, being ornery and mean, God might take that person home instead. These are dire warnings. And Paul says, be careful. You don't know why these things happen. But here's why some of them happen. Communion is a serious thing. And kids, maybe that's why mom and dad have said, I want you to wait a little longer. I want to make sure you understand this before you take communion. You have snacks in Sunday school class, and you could be eating juice, and you could be eating crackers that look just like this, but it's not communion. It's not coming together as a church. So if your parents or your grandparents say, I want you to wait a little longer, listen to them, talk to them about it, and say, I think I'm ready. Some people wait until they're baptized and think, well, if I'm ready to follow the Lord in obedience in baptism, then that's a good time to maybe start communion after I've been baptized. There's no specific instructions in the Bible for that, and there's no rules in our church about that, but it's something that you decide with your family. If you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you definitely should not participate, and that's where that warning comes. So our takeaways this morning as we're thinking about Paul's instructions to the church, first of all, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You've heard the gospel today. We sang about the blood of Jesus Christ washing away our sins, the fact that he had to give up his life for mine. He had to lay down his life for you. Have you accepted that gift and said, thank you, Jesus, for doing that? I want to follow you. I'm not following you so that I make it to heaven. I'm following you out of gratitude, out of thanks for loving me so much. That's the difference between works and grace. If we think we can do enough good things for God and for him to say, come on in, you did a little bit more than your good works outweighed your bad works. That's what a lot of people are thinking. We just have to do enough good things that they make the bad things not look as bad. And God says, all of your good deeds don't amount to anything compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only his blood could forgive your sins. So come to him, trust him as Savior. If you're watching online this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I would encourage you to read John chapter 3. It talks about new life in Jesus talks about being born again, a spiritual rebirth. And if you want to contact me through the church website, I'd be happy to talk to you. If you're here this morning and you need to know Jesus as your Savior, talk to me after the service. The next question is, are you ready for communion? Is this something that you've been putting off and you're understanding a little more fully now? Again, if you're a young person, talk with your parents, talk to your grandparents about this. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, that's the first step. Are you focused on Jesus Christ? Not just during communion, but your whole life. 
When we come together to celebrate communion, are your thoughts on what am I making? Did I remember to put this in the crock pot? Am I going to do this and this and this? It's so easy for all of those thoughts to, to bombard us when God wants our hearts and focus on him. So as we come into church each morning, in case you didn't notice, there's a five-minute warning, and then it gives us a two-minute warning, and it says the service is about to start. As that comes on, that would be a good time to start, to start settling your heart. To first of all, find a seat. If you're still out in the hallway with five minutes to go, come on in. But it's a time to stop talking. It's a time to stop chattering with other people and start focusing your heart. Pray and ask God that you would have a soft heart, that you would be focused on him, that you would hear his word this morning. And then throughout the week, the best way for me to focus on him is to hear from him in the morning, to read scripture, to talk to him, to give him the day and say, this is all about you. Help me to make this day glorify you and not about me. When we come together to worship, on Sundays, our focus should be on Him. And then when we come together, we need to humbly remember that we don't deserve to be here. It's only by God's grace that we've been welcomed and loved. It's only by His grace that you're part of the family. So you're not looking around and saying, I'm better than this person or that person. You're saying, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all in need of a Savior. And that should make me want to love and serve other people when I come to church instead of thinking about, did I get the seat I wanted? Did I get the creamer I wanted? Did I get that cookie or delightful thing downstairs? I'm going to grab that last one. Or am I going to leave it for somebody else? When we recognize that our unity is in Jesus Christ, our unity is not because we've been here longer or because we're better than anybody else. When we come together, our focus should be on Jesus and on the people around us. Mark's going to come. We're going to close with another great song. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we could be together to praise the name of Jesus Christ, that we could sing songs glorifying our Heavenly Father, magnifying His name, that our thoughts and everything we do this morning would be focused on Jesus. Thank you for communion, for this symbol to remind us on a regular basis that we are one in you, that as we come together, that's our focus, that as we come together, we know that we need the bread of life, that we need your blood to forgive us, that our salvation is only by your grace. I thank you, Lord, for reminding us of those things. Help us to love serve and encourage each other as a result of that. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, I pray. Amen.